wonder what verses I'm going to preach this week. And I read verse 1, and it says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. So those of you who are visiting today, this is just where we are in Ephesians. This wasn't a strategic message or anything, and so we will work through it the best that we can. Let me read our passage for us, and then I'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time in his word. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, this isn't an easy passage for us to hear. It's not an easy passage for us to study, but it is your word, and it tells us the truth about who we were before we were saved. Before you saved us, we were lost, we were sinful, we did not obey you and your law, but yet through your son Jesus Christ, you've given us a new relationship with you. So we pray that we would appreciate that this morning, Lord. We pray that we would understand what our life is now with redemption And that through this sermon that we would flee from sin and that we would be transformed through your word. So we ask your blessing on our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What would life look like without redemption? That's the question we're going to consider. It's getting to be a little closer to Christmas time. And we've got Operation Christmas Child packing today. If you've been by our house, we've already got our Christmas decorations up and we've got a couple trees inside, and we are getting ready for the Christmas season. Now, I know some of you would say this is a little bit too soon. I used to be in that camp, and then I got married, and all of a sudden, my thinking just changed on it magically. I don't know what happened. But we are excited for Christmas. You know, as we get closer to Christmas time, we all enjoy watching Christmas movies. One of my favorite movies to watch is It's a Wonderful Life, and it has George Bailey, who goes through this journey on what life would be like if he didn't exist. And he goes through all these different scenes in his life and what would happen to people. And he starts realizing that his life is wonderful and that he is valuable to the city that he lives in. So we think about our sermon this morning. The three verses that we read are difficult. They're not easy for us to understand. But I think they show us what life is like without redemption. We've been in Ephesians and looking at our identity in Christ. What do we have now that we're Christians, now that God has saved us? And we said that we have redemption. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Paul is writing to Christians, people who have believed the gospel. There may have been some unsaved people there, but that's not his target audience. And so he's telling them, you're saved, you have redemption. But then in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, he's reminding them of what they used to be like. Now, these people had probably only been saved for a couple of years. They were still going through some growing pains in their walk with Jesus. And Paul, in this new section of Ephesians, is trying to remind them of what they used to live like. And I don't think he's doing this to try to make them feel bad. I don't think he's doing this to try to put them down. But I think he's reminding them of this to show them the value of the redemption that they have in Christ. He's trying to show them that they have a new identity. We need to understand our identity in Christ. And the more that we recognize our sinful past, the more that we realize the work that God has done in saving us. Sometimes we have this notion that the longer we're saved, 
the less we consider our past. And we don't just want to be living in guilt over what we used to do. But I've noticed the longer that I'm a Christian, the more I realize how holy God is and how good he is and how righteous he is. And then the more I realize how sinful I was before God saved me and just how far that distance was in salvation. And then how much grace it took for God to save me and how he's been transforming me and working in my life. And this is what I think Paul is trying to show us here. Whether you've been saved for a long time, maybe you were saved when you were younger like I was, or maybe you were saved later in life, we're seeing what life would look like without redemption. So let's look at this this morning. We want to see from these three verses that we should recognize the saving work of God in our life. As we look at what we used to be like, we appreciate God, his grace, his redemption, and we recognize the saving work of God in our lives. We first want to recognize our previous condition. We see that in verse 1. This is stated for us by Paul. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now step back for a moment. Think about this. If you're in the Ephesian church, these letters were often read on a Sunday morning or whenever they would meet to the church that was there and they didn't have chapter divisions and they didn't have verses. It was just a long letter that they would read. And so you would have somebody reading what we studied last week, talking about the authority of Christ. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You get to verse 23, he talks about the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. And then you get to verse 1 of chapter 2, and you are dead in trespasses and sins. And it's just right there. And there's no real transition. And all of a sudden, it just catches you off guard a little bit. And I think Paul writes it this way on purpose. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to wake them up a little bit to the topic he's about to speak on. Paul tells them that they were dead. This obviously isn't physical death because they were alive physically, but this is spiritual death. This word means that you're lifeless. It's a concept that isn't just talked about in scripture, but in Greek philosophy as well being spiritually dead, unable to do anything. Paul doesn't just say that we're dead, but he says that we're dead in trespasses and sins. Trespassing means to take a false step, to misstep somewhere. But it's not just an accident. It's not just a mistake. It's doing it on purpose. It's intentional. Let me illustrate this for a moment. Let's say that you're on a diet and you're trying to go low carb or low sugar and you go to someone's house and they serve you a meal that looks pretty healthy and you eat the meal and then afterwards they say, oh, that had a lot of sugar in it. And there's nothing more you can do. It's just a mistake. Or maybe you're trying to find some low sugar, low carb snacks and you eat a snack that looks pretty healthy and then you find out that it maybe has stuff in it that you didn't want to eat on your diet. Well, that's a mistake. What's not a mistake is when you go to McDonald's, you order two Big Macs and three large fries and you say, I just made a mistake. I was trying to follow my diet, but I don't know what came over me. When we sinned, we trespassed against God's law we didn't just make an accidental mistake, we made an intentional mistake. We purposely disobeyed God, even if we didn't realize that he existed. All of us, when we were born, 
had some kind of knowledge of what's wrong and what's right. How do we know that? Well, you can ask Schaefer and Caitlin in the back. They know even now when Sandy knows that she shouldn't do something and when she's disobeying. You have that mindset. We've been over to my wife's family. They've got my nephew Bentley, who's two. He knows even at two years old, if you've told him not to do something over and over and over again, he gets this little smile on his face. And then he tries to do the same thing again, and he knows when he's going to get in trouble. All of us, even if we can't verbalize it, understood at that time what was right and what was wrong. So there's trespasses. That's, this is what Paul talks about. You were dead in your trespasses. What does that mean? Well, it means you couldn't do anything about it. You were sinning, you were rejecting God, and you just couldn't help yourself. You just continued to do it. If you'd ask my wife what my... One of my biggest temptations is when it comes to food, it's Reese's peanut butter cups. And when they're in the house, I just can't help myself. And there was one night she asked me, did you have a Reese's peanut butter cup? And I thought, I don't know why you'd be asking me that right now. She's like, because I can smell it on your breath. <laughs> they're just there and there's something that comes over me. Now this week, I faced a little bit of temptation because Peggy left some candy for us last week and there were... Many, many Reese's peanut butter cups in that bowl. And you guys aren't here during the week. I'm here. I have to walk by that every day. And I'm like, I'll just take one, an hour when I walk through there. And then I'll, before you know it, you've eaten four or five of them. You deal with temptation. He also says that you're dead in sins. This is missing the mark. It's a departure from God's divine standards of righteousness. This includes intentionally falling short of his standards. On our honeymoon, my wife and I went to Top Golf. It's a really cool driving range where you can hit golf balls and you can aim for different targets. It's really fascinating to get to go there. I think I enjoyed it a little bit more than my wife, but we still had fun. And when you walk in, you see all these people teeing off and some of these guys are pros. They're just hitting the targets and they're getting all these points. And I used to work at a golf course. My wife says I say that a little bit too much, but I did. I mowed the lawn. I didn't teach anybody golf. So I went to tee up, and I'm thinking this is the first time Alicia's ever seen me play golf. And so I thought I need to make a good impression. So I wind up, I pick my club, and I'm taking some practice strokes to try to hit it. I hit the ball. It hits the end of my club, goes 90 degrees behind me, hits another machine, Bounces up, hits the ceiling, comes down and then back into where all the other people were. And so we're all ducking for cover because of that. And this old golf pro comes up to me and he says, I've never seen anyone shoot the ball quite like you just shot it right now. I think he was trying to be nice to me. What he was really saying is, we need to clear the room when you <laughs> shoot the golf ball. I wasn't just a little bit off. I was completely missing the mark. And when we think about sin, it is missing God's standard. And sometimes what we like to do when we talk about our sin is we say we were just a little bit off. We weren't that far away from God's righteousness. You know, I just told a little lie. I just bent the truth a little bit. I just took one piece of candy when I shouldn't have. And we think we're just right there for missing the mark. When the reality is we're way off. We're not even close. When it comes to God's holiness and his righteousness and our sinfulness, we are just miles away from ever being able to measure up to his righteousness. And Paul says we were dead in trespasses and sins. 
So not only were we sinning, but there's nothing we could do about it. We couldn't help ourselves. This was the Ephesians condition before salvation. This is our condition as well. And I don't think Paul is writing this to try to make them feel bad or to try to make them feel ashamed. But he's trying to remind them of who they used to be. Now, why are we dead in trespasses and sins? Well, if you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of one man, Jesus Christ. So this is contrasting Adam and Jesus. Adam sinned once in the garden. That sin caused us to have a sin nature. You were born with it. It's not something that you had to learn. None of us, when we were children, had to learn how to be sinful. We all knew what it meant to be sinful. And why is that? Because it's passed down to us through Adam and Eve. And yet, through Jesus Christ, the rest of that verse says that we can have righteousness through the gift of God. Now, one objection that comes to this, it often comes up, is how sinful are we? And that means as an unsaved person, are you as sinful as you possibly could be? You probably know people that are unsaved that are good people, just objectively by the world standards. They're not always as bad as we might think they are. And I I think that's true. I don't think that these verses are saying that you are as sinful as you possibly could be. But what I think Paul is saying is that you are affected in every part by sin, not just in your actions, but in your thinking. So even if in your actions you're not as bad as you could be, you're still sinful in your thoughts. I'm very thankful that not everyone can see my thoughts or hear my thoughts and know what I'm thinking in every moment because they would realize how sinful I am. We're not just sinful in our actions and in our thoughts. We're sinful in our desires and what we want. Maybe I'm doing the right thing physically, but what I want is something else. Maybe I'm doing the right thing to try to look good, but my desires are not godly. Sin has not just affected our actions. It's affected all of us. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that all the Ephesians before they were saved were as bad as they could be. He's saying that all of them, their mind, will, and emotions have been affected by sin. And I would also say this, that because of our sin, because we're separated from God, we have the potential to sin in even greater ways. When we hear some just horrific things that have happened on the news, in town, in different environments, sometimes we're tempted to think, I could never do that, even as an unsaved person. I could never even dream of doing that. When the reality is, all of us, because of sin, have the potential to do unrighteousness. All of us are separated from God because of our sin. So let's not think this morning that we're any better than the unsaved world sometimes. We see the world and we see the wickedness in it. We see how revolting it is. And sometimes we think that I was way different than that before I was saved. When the truth is, you were the same way. Now, I was saved when I was six. I don't think I'd done too many detestable things. I wasn't wanted by the FBI. I wasn't robbing banks or doing drugs at that point. But these things were still true about me. I was still dead in trespasses and sins. I still disobeyed God's law. Maybe I didn't verbalize it or do the actions that other people did. Maybe I didn't have the chance to. But I will say this. Had I not been saved, 
had I not been redeemed, I could have easily done some of those things. I could have easily ended up in some of those situations. So we recognize this this morning, not to be prideful, but to praise God for his redemption. If you've been saved all your life, maybe you were saved when you were young, you can thank God for what God saved you from. Thank God that he didn't allow me to continue to be dead in my trespasses and sins. Maybe you've not been saved for a long time. Maybe you do have regrets. Maybe you have done things in your life that you know were sinful before salvation. You can praise God for the work of transformation that he's done in you and how he's changed you. We need to view ourselves correctly. We need to understand who we were before we were saved, not so that we can wallow in guilt and shame, but so that we can be thankful to God for what he's done in our lives and so that we can continue to grow and witness to others. Every time we see someone who needs the gospel, we shouldn't think, well, I don't want to get around them and their sinfulness. We don't want to be sinful like they are, but we should think, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be no better off than they are. So we need to accept, we need to recognize our sinful condition. We also need to recognize our previous influences. We see that in verses 2 through 3. The lifestyle of being dead in trespasses and sins is then continued to be described in verse 2. It says, in which you once walked. This doesn't just mean that you're walking. The word means to walk around, but it's often used in the New Testament to say this is what you lived in. You weren't just dead, but these are the actions that you did. You lived sinful actions in your life. Your life was characterized by these things. As I've gotten married, my wife has told me as she's organized our house and helped me change the way that I live, she said a couple times, I don't know how you used to live this way. Now, it was in reference to me folding the laundry a certain way or, you know, where I put the cleaning supplies But sometimes I, even in a couple months of being married, I think, what would life be like without Alicia? And a couple weeks ago, she was sick, and she was sick for a long time. So I got to experience what would life be like without Alicia. And these were my thoughts. Number one, we quickly ran out of laundry. I learned that if you don't do laundry, you're going to run out of clothes to wear eventually. Number two, we ate a lot more McDonald's and fast food. I quickly ran out of meals that I could cook on my own. And so I began getting takeout and different things like that. Number three, once she was better, she started looking around the house and saying, why is this dish here? Why did you put this over here? And then finally, it looked like the dogs were much happier. They were being fed every day. They were happy that Alicia was back in control of doing things. And so we're thankful that Alicia is feeling better. Life without redemption means a life devoted to sin and unrighteousness. Hopefully in your Christian life, even though you're not perfect, you can see how God has changed you from how you used to live. Maybe you can see what he saved you from. What Paul is going to show us in these two verses is the sinful influences that used to impact us, that used to tempt us. He first says that we were following the course of this world. There's three influences in scripture that are often talked about in regards to temptation. The first one is the world. Course usually indicates time. It's a temporal word. It could mean the age of this world, the culture of this world, the times of this world. And then the world doesn't just mean the physical earth, but it's the culture. It's the system of unrighteousness that is the world. 
Have you ever noticed that the trends of culture are always changing? What kids seem to be into now are changing. When I go sub at the public school, it's not been that long ago that I graduated from college and from high school, and yet things are totally different. I'll ask kids, hey, are people still into this, or do they still talk about this? And they say, that was years ago. That was before we were even in school that people were talking about that. Things always just change. And even if there is a trend or a fashion for one time, it's probably not going to last very long. The same is true in other interests of the world as well. Entertainment, politics, beliefs, interests, things are always changing. People's views are always changing. Think about what we thought people just accepted as fact 10 years ago, 20 years ago, even before I was born, and what people think today. How many of us thought that we'd be discussing what's the difference between a man and a woman, and just what gender is. How many of us thought that we'd be having AI churches and AI pastors, even as people have told me about, or the AI Bible? How many of us even knew what artificial intelligence was until a couple years ago? How many of us thought that Christians would embrace all this profanity from the pulpit and from churches and embrace non-biblical leadership? Things have just changed rapidly throughout the world. And yet, as we see that, things have stayed the same. If you look at the world and you look at how things have changed, you see the same trends that continue to happen. If you read Ephesians, Paul talks about sexual immorality, corrupt speech, idolatry, marriages that are broken, drunkenness, a rightly ordered church. We still deal with those things. And we deal with them in different ways, but there's still issues. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul dealt with a lot of different issues that were part of the pagan world that the Corinthians lived in. And they're part of our world today as well. The world has always been tempting man towards sin. They've always been trying to lead people into their process of thinking. But know this, the world does not cause us to sin. You can be tempted by the world. You can see what the world puts out there. The world doesn't make you sin. What makes you sin? It is when your heart decides, I'm going to obey what the world says. I'm going to do what the world wants me to do. I'm going to follow the way of this world instead of following what the Bible has instructed. Instead of looking at the ways of righteousness and living like God wants you to. We were tempted by the world if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, my prayer is that you're not as tempted maybe as you used to be before you were saved, but that you flee from that sinful temptation and that you run to Jesus. We weren't just tempted by the world. We were tempted by the devil. It says the prince, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What does this mean that he's the prince of the power of the air? I was in a youth group and I was with an older gentleman from our church that was driving me somewhere. And I asked if we could turn on the radio and he said, no, because the devil is the prince of the power of the air and he's affecting the radio waves that are coming through. And I thought, okay, so we're not going to turn on the radio. I don't think that's exactly what Paul is talking about when he says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So let's break it down for a second. Prince means a ruler or lord. We know that the devil has 
a dominion or a captivity, you may call it, over the world. Now, I say that, that does not mean that he has authority over God. That is very clear throughout Scripture. God has authority. In fact, go back to the last verses of chapter 1. Jesus Christ has authority over all things. But often in Scripture, we see that people are encaptivated by sin and they're enslaved to the devil. If you read John 12, 31, now, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Satan is called the ruler of the world. John fourteen thirty. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me. John sixteen eleven. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan is often called the ruler of this world, the god of this age, but he does not have authority over Christ. So what does it mean that he's the prince of the power of the air? Well, we know he has some control in the world. The air could refer to the unseen spiritual realm where demons are, where spiritual influences are. But yet, we read last week, Christ has authority over rulers, over principalities, over powers. There's no one that has more authority than him. Now, there's people today that want to tell you the devil doesn't exist. They misunderstand the devil. Our society paints the devil as this person who has little horns and he wears a red suit and he is almost this cartoon character. That's not what the devil looks like. The devil is real. The devil is scary, but maybe not as much in his appearance. Remember, he was an angel of light. Sometimes the devil doesn't appear to us like we expect him to. He doesn't just always lead us to what is totally opposite of God, but he tries to distort the truth. When Eve sinned, he didn't just say, you should go do the absolute opposite, but he said, would you surely die? He twists the truth. He distorts reality. He tries to get you to just stray maybe a little bit from what God has commanded you to do. I believe the next phrase refers to the devil as well. The spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He has an influence. He is working in humans. He's trying to tempt them. He's trying to get them away from God and his standard of righteousness. Before salvation, we did what the devil wanted us to do. After salvation, the devil is trying to tempt us. He's trying to get us as far away from God's plan for our lives as he possibly can. And yet, can the devil make us sin? The answer is no, he can't. He can tempt us to sin. He can put things right in front of us. He can try to manipulate situations, but the devil cannot make us sin. What makes us sin? It's our hearts. Our hearts, when it is tempted, we choose to obey the devil rather than God. And that brings us to the final influence, which is the flesh. Paul says, Among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he talks about these sons of disobedience, people who disobey God's law. We used to live like they did. Before we were saved, we would, were disobedient to God. And how is this described? It's described by our flesh. 
We lived in the desires of our flesh. It's our body. It's our old nature, as some people would call it. Our old life, which tempted us towards sin. Before we were saved, we did not want the things of God. We wanted the things concerning ourselves. We live by our own desires. He says, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. The flesh feeds on physical things, our hungers, our desires. Maybe they're sexual, maybe they're physical. And then our mind, our thought process as well, the way that we live. These things aren't outside of us. These are inside of us in our sinful flesh. It comes from our sin nature, which is inherited by Adam. What does the flesh look like? What are the works of the flesh? We'll go to Galatians chapter 5 for just a moment. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, in verse 18, you are not under the law. In verse 19, he says, and the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things, and things like these, I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The truth is that sometimes we like to blame things outside of us for why we sin. We blame the world. Well, the world caused me to sin. The trends of the world, I just got wrapped up in it. Well, that's not true. You sin because you chose to disobey God. Sometimes we say, well, the devil made me do it. The devil caused me to sin. That's not true. The devil tempted you with sin. You chose to disobey God. And what we read in Galatians chapter 5 is that these are the things that we would like to do if it weren't for the Spirit's work in our life. We would do the list of sins that are listed here. And Paul says these things are not worthy of those who enter the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that you'll be totally sinless after you're saved, but it does mean that the Spirit is working in your life so you don't have to do these things anymore. Paul is describing our sin nature. He's describing what we were like before we were saved. He says back in Ephesians 2, we were by nature children of wrath. What does that mean? That before we were saved, we were destined for destruction. God is holy. He has a righteous standard. Without Christ, without redemption, without salvation, we would be destroyed by God. Without the gospel, we'd be separated from God in a place called hell. He says we're children of wrath destined for destruction like the rest of mankind. This isn't just true of us. It's true of all people who sin and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is showing us this not to make us feel guilty, but to remind us of what God has done for us in salvation. We sinned not because we were forced to, but because we wanted to, because we wanted to disobey God. All of this builds up to verse 4, which we'll look at next week, when it says, But God, being rich in mercy. We were sinful. We went our own way. We followed the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God saved us. But God made us alive in Christ. And focusing on these things is not just an attempt of Paul to try to make us feel bad, but it shows us the value of our redemption.
It shows us what Christ has done for us. It shows us, like he says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. How do I know that I'm saved by grace? How do I know that it's a gift of God? It's not of yourselves. If you could save yourself, you would end up like verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. You'd be lost. You'd be dead in trespasses and sins. You'd be following the world, the flesh, and the devil. These verses show us our need for God's work in our lives. Sometimes we don't recognize the size of sin. How one even small mistake, one small sin can separate us from God. I was reading this week about the Walinda family. They're a group of daredevils who do tightrope walking. Now, I don't know about you, I don't have any balance to save my life, and I'm afraid of heights. So even looking at people doing tightrope walking gives me just terror and fear. I, I couldn't even look at some of these pictures of how, what they were doing. One of the Walinda children, Nick Walinda, was the first person to walk across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope. And again, I couldn't even imagine doing that. And they were known for their stunts and their events. And when Carl Walinda, the father of this family, was 73 years old, he had already done many great feats of tightrope walking. But he realized something one day, that one mistake would mean the end of his career. And while he was tightrope walking 1,800 feet in the air, he slipped once and plummeted to his death. And he'd done all these great tricks and he'd made, he'd made the perfect steps and had perfect balance all throughout his 73 years of being alive. But one little slip caused him to plummet to his death. Now, I don't think we have any tightrope walkers in our family or in our church family here. I know there's none in my family or I'm not one, but it does illustrate this. How many sins does it take you, does it take to be separated from God? One, even one small mistake, even one small sin that we may not even think is that big of a deal separates us from God, violates his standard. Now, the truth is that we've not just sinned once. We've sinned over and over again, and our sin separates us from God. Do you recognize the sinful influences that were once part of your life, the world, the flesh, the devil? Are you thankful to God for his redemption? If you've been redeemed, then you also have the power to resist sin. As Paul is showing us these things, later on in chapter 4, he's going to encourage them, don't walk like the Gentiles used to walk, like you used to. Don't live in these ways. If you're tempted by the world, even as a Christian, know that Christ has overcome the world. Be renewed in your mind by the word of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And through God's word, through embracing God's standards for how he wants you to live, you can be different from the world. What about the devil? How can we resist the devil? Well, James chapter 4 simply says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we do that? He says, draw near to God. Humble yourself. Realize that you can't resist the devil on your own. Draw near to God. Resist the devil and the devil will flee from you. How did Christ resist the devil? In Matthew 
I mean, Christ is the Son of God. But what did he do? He used Scripture. He used God's Word to resist the devil. Lastly, how do we resist the flesh? How do we resist the flesh? Well, we walk in the Spirit. Paul says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts or the desires of the flesh. Have a life dominated by the Spirit of God. So as we close this morning, we want to look at how can we abandon our sinful past. This is who we were before Christ. We don't want to live this way, but we're still sinful. We still struggle with sin. So how do we overcome this? First of all, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've never been saved, if you've never accepted the gospel, Christ died so that you can be free from the penalty of sin, so that you don't have to pay the consequences of your sin. He's redeemed you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, thank God for that. Secondly, renew your mind with the word of God. Go to God's word. If you see yourself beginning to look like the world, embracing the world system, what the world loves, go to God's word. Read it. Be transformed by it. Begin to change your thinking. The more time you spend in God's word, the more you'll see yourself transform and not be like the world, but be a living sacrifice for God. Thirdly, resist the devil. The devil is real. The devil has power, but not more power than God. Draw near to God. Resist the devil. Fourthly, pray for the Spirit's help. Walk in the Spirit. Pray that the Spirit would help you overcome your flesh and your desires. And finally, embrace the spiritual disciplines and godly accountability. So we were in Sunday school, Tim talked about 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And when we get to that last phrase, instruction in righteousness, we sometimes wonder, what does that mean? We know what doctrine means. It's what we believe. We know what reproof means. It means that we need to be reprimanded. We need to repent. Correction means we change what we've done. We start living differently. But I like what Tim said today. He said, instruction in righteousness keeps you on the right path. What keeps us from sin? What keeps us from falling into these influences? I would say the spiritual disciplines, which is prayer, confession, meditation on God's word, and accountability. Get accountability with others. If you know you struggle with sin, if you know that you need help overcoming sin, find a godly accountability in your life. Embrace transparency. Be honest with how you struggle. Sometimes people want accountability, but they don't want to be honest about where they fall short in different areas. Embrace the spiritual disciplines and godly accountability. It's funny, as I told you about how I like to eat Reese's peanut butter cups, if my wife just got a whole bag of them and put them on our kitchen counter, she wouldn't really be helping me overcome my battle with trying to resist that temptation. But when she hides them or when she gets rid of them or when she sees me eating them and tells me that's not going to be good for my diet, it helps me resist that temptation of trying to do that. And that's a silly illustration, but it illustrates something. That as a church, we want to help one another resist sin. We don't want to live like these three verses. They're not fun to look at. 
We want to resist sin. We want to be transformed through God's word. Ultimately, because we're believers in Jesus Christ, we should be thankful for what God has done in our life. And if you've been saved, this is not true of you anymore. It was once true, but you've now been redeemed. You've now been saved by grace. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these verses. We know these aren't easy things for us to hear, but we pray that you would help us to apply them to our lives. We pray that as we continue throughout the day, as we continue into this week, that you'd help us to resist sin. We thank you for your mercy. We know that it's more than the sin that we've been plagued with. Help us to respond according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.